0: I'm sure you've immersed, immersed. <laughs> I'm sure that you've missed uh, First Timothy for the last couple of weeks, uh, so I'm not going to keep you from First Timothy any longer. We're going to jump immediately back into Chapter Three, where we've been considering God's uh, pattern that He puts here in Scriptures as to His uh, plan for the organization of the church. Uh, and so far, we've already studied the office uh, of elder or overseer. We did that in quite a bit of a detail, and we're coming now to the second uh, God-ordained church office that you find uh, in Scripture. And that is the office of deacons. So if you would read in the NASB with me, uh, it's the Pew Bible if you don't have one of these, or you can just follow along in your... Your uh, translation, and let me tell you, there are a lot of good ones. We just happen to use the NAS here, but there's lots of other good ones. Uh, But I'm just going to read two verses. Beginning with verse 8. Actually, I'm going to read more than that. Uh, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women or wives, it can be translated, which is how we're going to see it, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife uh, and good managers of their children of their own household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence of the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word diaconos very often is simply translated as Servant. So there is a sense in which everyone here is a deacon, okay, in the sense that God has called every one of us to be servants. I mean, this is something that Jesus Christ makes very clear, and that is if you are his, then you are his, and that means a lot of things. But one of those is he is your master and you are his servant. But when we put that in context, we understand that there's more than that being spoken about here that this is a special office and this, this whole section of first Timothy Paul this is exactly what Paul is addressing, and so we understand that there's also an office of deacon, which is to be occupied not by everyone but by particular men who are specifically and particularly, I said it, gifted for this particular office. I want to jump back to Acts chapter 6 and read just a little bit because this is where, even though you find the basis and the ground for the office of elder in the Old Testament, uh, what we understand is this, is that the deacon is is a new office. that was introduced into the New Testament church and uh, it took place because of the circumstances of the early church. And just let me read a little bit of chapter 6 from Acts for you, and you'll see what I'm getting at here. Now, this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their wives were or widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation and disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, the first thing I would like for us to understand this morning is this. You can actually translate that particular word as well as helper. There is a true sense in the word in which deacons are helpers to the elders. Uh, Now, let me just say this. The apostles implemented, but you need to understand that the apostles were a special class of elder. They also considered themselves to be elders. They also called themselves elders. John the Apostle and Peter the Apostle both address themselves or identify themselves as being elders. Now, we understand that there are no longer any apostles in the church, but there are still elders. And the sense that is presented here is this, is that the purpose of this office is to relieve responsibility of the elders in particular areas for a reason. And the reason is this, is their principal and primary ministry is the ministry of the word and prayer. Sit in my office this week, preparing for this morning, and I could hear the hum of a piece of machinery outside my window. I wasn't sure whether it was a weed whacker or a... Uh, hedge trimmer or whatever it was, but I, I was positive that if I went out inside and looked, that I would find John Ross on the other end of it. And certainly he was. The picture I want you to see here, guys, is this. is I was able to sit in my office and do what I did Without being distracted with things like, do the bushes need to be trimmed? Does the grass need to be cut? Without getting involved in the details of the finances on a daily basis and this, that, and the other. Deacons are a very great blessing that the Lord has given to the church. They occupy a very important position, a position that churches suffer from that don't have men that do this. Before I became an elder, I was a deacon. And let me tell you, it wasn't one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, As a matter of fact, in the church that I happened to be in, deacons basically were relegated to opening the church up on Sunday morning and locking the door when everybody left. No real responsibilities given to them. They made, made no significant financial decisions. They, they didn't do the budget. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. It was more or less a title that was given to them. And obviously the only reason for that is other people looked upon things as if they had absolute and sole authority over all of the workings of the church. We have been blessed with great deacons through the generations, and I'm saying generations now. We've been here for a little while. Guys that have really committed themselves to being here, to doing even the most menial things, understanding that it's their way of contributing to the workings of the body of the church in a manner that things are a lot better because they're, because they're here, they're doing what they're doing. So I want to be the first person to encourage everyone here to never, ever look down upon deacons as if they occupy some lesser position or one that's not important or this, that, and the other. They're absolutely critically essential to the lifeblood of the church of Jesus Christ. They are. We're blessed by them. Just as we found for the office of elder, there are qualifications given in scripture, and and I just want to challenge us with this idea too. There are all kinds of things that you and I could very easily add to these lists that are very legitimate. For instance... Do you think that deacons uh, should be sympathetic, compassionate? Uh, Do you think deacons should have, you know, things like uh, hospitable nature and this, that, and the other? I mean, see, there's all kinds of things we could add to these things, but we need to be careful about doing that. Don't get the idea I'm adding to scripture because what I'm telling you is this, is all those things apply to all of us. But I'm telling you, maybe there's a sense in which they apply more to this particular group of guys. Deacons likewise are similarly. In other words, just as, the, as there were qualifications for a man to become an elder, there are also qualifications or characteristics a man must have in, in order to become a deacon, to be an effective deacon, to do what deacons do and to do it well. Must be men of dignity. Dignity. In other words, men that are respectable. Now, I know a lot of you are older like I am. <laughs> and one of the lessons we learned when you were, we were little was this, is you're going to respect me whether you want to or not. Right? Right? You will respect me. I hope that we've grown beyond that. I hope that's not what we passed on to our own children. Because the truth is this, is respect has never been anything that anyone can demand from anyone else. Respect is something that is earned. Respect is something that, true respect is something that can only be given By someone who truly respects the person they're giving it to. What would that mean? It would mean things like behaving in a respectable manner. It would be things like being respectable toward those who have authority over you. But again, it's a a natural flowing characteristic of someone that has truly a deep and close and loving relationship with Jesus Christ. What I'm saying here is this, is if if that is true, then these things will be true. And, and, And if these things are not apparently true, then that raises a question of what is your relationship with the Lord really like? Not two-worded or double-tongued. In other words, this person doesn't speak with a forked tongue. In other words, doesn't say one thing to one person, something different to another one. Doesn't play to the audience. In other words, what they say changes depending on who they happen to be around. Those kinds of things. Do you know any people like that? What I would say is this is all of us are like that to some degree because all of us want people to respect us. All people want to, want to be liked and loved and, and, and all those kinds of things. And, and, and we do this, guys. Let's be honest. We cater to the people who are around us and the things that we say to them. We're selective in what we say to them very often because we want them to think and believe certain things about us. And it's true of every one of us. But we're talking about men in which these things are not apparent. In other words, they don't have a reputation for being double-tongued. That sort of thing. Not addicted uh, to much wine. Actually, what it says is, is not paying attention to much wine kind of an odd way of saying things, but that's what it says in the Greek. Not not giving a lot of attention to wine, to much wine. We understand that to mean someone who is not an alcoholic, a practicing alcoholic, a drunkard. Uh, I hope you're noticing here as we're going through these qualifications for deacon. There are a lot of them that overlap with elder because that's one that's mentioned there. Some of these are mentioned specifically for elders as well. There's obvious reasons why a man that pays a lot of attention to his wine or too much attention to his wine is not in a very good place to be serving the Church of Jesus Christ in a leadership position, right? How can he be sober minded? There are people that I know. However, there's a guy that I used to be very close to years ago. haven't heard anything from him in a very long time. I'm not even sure whatever happened to him uh, and that sort of thing. But early on in my life as a Christian, I spent time with him. Let me tell you, he had the heart of of a deacon. I mean, he loved to do service projects. You know, whatever was needed to be done, he was willing to do it. This, that, and the other. But unfortunately, he had an alcohol addiction. And so very obvious obvious to the people around him who loved him, who knew him, who cared for him. We saw these strengths in him, but because of that particular thing, he could not serve the church as a deacon. Now, we all have our own addictions. And let me tell you, some of the the most courageous people that I know are those folks who suffer from alcoholism, but they don't succumb to it. They're involved in their 12-step program or this or that or the other—they're very much involved in their churches. They get a lot of strength and, and encouragement and comfort from that. Let me just tell you this: what we're talking about here is someone who is a practicing alcoholic, not someone who may struggle with alcoholism. Now, there are a lot of churches you come to. We're going to do the Lord's Supper this morning. In a lot of churches, they use wine, and there's some churches that would tell you if you're not using wine, then you're using something from Satan. Okay, that's how far they would go. We don't do it here for a reason. And the reason is this, is we do not want something as precious as the Lord's Supper to become a stumbling block for anybody. And wine is not required by Scripture. Only the fruit of the vine is. Grape juice. Just as Paul says, if, if, if eating meat sacrificed to idols is going to cause my brother to stumble, then may I never eat meat again in my whole lifetime. That is why we do what we do. Deacons must be men of dignity, respectable, not double-tongued are addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain or dishonest gain. Deacons will be dealing with finances in the church. They will be signing checks. They will have everything to say about where money goes and where money doesn't go, etc., There are horror stories I could tell you about deacons that have embezzled money from churches. Sometimes a lot of money from churches over very long periods of time. That sort of thing. A lot of protections against it. You know, in a church where there are multiple deacons, it would make it very hard for something like that to happen. Uh, But let's be honest, money does have this attraction for all of us. We do have some desire for you know the world and its treasures and, and I know it's true for you. it's true for me, maybe it's not true for you, maybe I'm by myself out here. But there's still this appeal that comes through. When we think about Judas Iscariot, what things come to mind? Traitor. Traitor. Betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, right? What else? He loved money. He loved money, as a matter of fact. In John chapter 12, verse 6, it's made note of the fact that he was entrusted with a money box. In other words, when people gave money for the ministry of Jesus, the money went into the box, and Judas was the one who kept the box. And John tells us there that he used to take money out of the box for himself. He pilfered the treasury of the Lord in a sense. Temptation. Men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a great conscience. Now, you've heard the adage that, that everybody loves a great mystery, right? You like to see crime mystery movies, and maybe you read books about, that are mysteries and things like this. The Hardy Boys, when I was a kid, was a big deal. Probably don't even do Hardy Boys anymore, but people used to read those Hardy Boys mystery and Nancy Drew mysteries. The girls read those, but the guys wouldn't read those. You see a lot of that reflected in the in the TV programs today, that same sort of thing. Uh, we do love mysteries and let me just say this: that Christianity is full of them it 's full of mysteries, and from our perspective, where we are today, they are unsolvable mysteries. We may try, we may push, we may consider, we may ponder, we may do this out or the other, but let me tell you, we will never find the answer and not in this world not in this time What i'm talking about are things like the trinity the trinity is one of the most mysterious doctrines taught in scripture it stands by itself and what we're talking about here that god is one but at the same time that god is three and is one in person but three in essence father son and holy spirit now does that make sense to you It almost sounds like a split personality, a schizophrenic kind of being. It is one of the points where folks like Jehovah's Witnesses would would attack you and I's understanding of things. This is the point of disagreement. We believe in the Trinity. And why do we believe in the Trinity? We believe in the Trinity because if you go through Scripture and consider everything it says about God and the three persons of God, It's the only conclusion that you can come to and stay true to the word of God. But let me ask you something. Do you understand it? Does it make all that much sense to you? Do you fully comprehend all the implications that come with the package? Charlie's saying no. And I hope you are too. But then let me ask you another question. Nonetheless, do you still believe it? Yes, and why? Because of the Holy Spirit working within you, who enlightens us, and because of the Word of God. This is how God's described himself to us. What about the person of Christ? A being who is both God, both divine and human at the same time. Fully God and fully man. Sounds a little bit mysterious to us. At least to me. But let me tell you, and you've heard me say this before. There's another very great mystery. And this is a mystery I struggle with more than anything else. And that mystery is this is why does God love me like he does? How can he? So what we're talking about here is, uh, is men who understand that there are mysteries of the faith. They understand that we don't have all the answers to absolutely every question that we have. They don't fabricate answers Because they feel like they have to tell people something. They don't make something up. Let me tell you something. Don't ever use analogies to try to explain the Trinity to anybody. Because if you do, you are demonstrating heresy. Because there is nothing like it. There has never been anything like it. There never will be anything like it. So the best thing we can do is not try to simplify it by using analogies because they don't work. So we're talking about men who know the difference between what we really do know and what we don't know and understanding there are things that we really don't know. And yet... They're comfortable with it. So, if men meet these qualifications... Let these also first be tested. So if they meet those qualifications, then let them be tested. And and you know understand that the testing has at least in part to do with the testing of their faith. In other words, I would say that one of the things that Paul is alluding to here is the idea that men that become deacons should not be new converts. Because they have not walked the road of faith long enough to understand and realize whether it's real and genuine. And not only that, the church doesn't know whether it's real and genuine or not. Until there's been a time of testing when it's been sustained over time. And, it, and it's hit some bumps and it hits some rumps. And, it, and it's, it continues. Jesus describes people as being the seed that falls on the rocky soil, Right? where initially it looks, it, you know, it takes root and, and this, that, and the other, but there's no life in the soil, and when persecution comes along, then the plant dr- uh, dries up and dies. You may have known some people in your lifetime that had professed faith in Jesus Christ, but in time, crisis came, they fell away. What did that crisis do? It proved that the faith they claimed to have in Jesus Christ was not true faith. I think it means more than that also. So not just the testing of their faith. PCA, some people would say the PCA expects far too much from its ministers and all the other officers of the church i heard people say things like that. Why do you have to go to seminary for three years? Why do you have to do this? Why do you have to do that? God called you to preach or teach or whatever. All you need to do is pick up your Bible and head down the road and do it. That is not our perspective because it was not Jesus' perspective. Jesus spent three years teaching and training John and Peter and Andrew and all the other guys. Training is essential, necessary. That's why we have leadership training in this church, which we should be starting up, and this is what I was confused about, the first week in September. Uh, there's nomination forms are out there. Some of you turned them in. I hope you're praying about it and you're thinking about it and, 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 and you're honestly reading through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, reading the qualifications, and you feel good about nominating particular people to office. If you don't feel good about it, please don't do it. I hope some of you are not in a position where you feel like you have to nominate somebody whether you want to or not. If you don't want to, don't do it. As a matter of fact, I'd say if you don't want to, please don't do it. I would beg you not to do it. When you nominate someone for office, you need to be weighing them in the balance of Scripture. and You need to be... Coming to the conclusion that this man meets these qualifications. Not perfect. You understand, we're not talking about perfect people. You're not going to find that perfect elder or deacon candidate. But in real and practical ways, you see these things being displayed and lived out in the life of this man. To become a deacon in the PCA, you have to be nominated, you have to go through training, and you have to go through testing. And the same thing is true of being an elder. And one of the most aspects, important aspects of that training is this, or, or that testing is this, is do you know your Bible? That's the most important one. In all of this, do you understand scripture? Can you take your Bible and explain from it the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Can you lead maybe simple Bible studies, those kinds of things? To understand this, elders are supposed to do that. That is part, a big part of their job. Deacons, on the other hand, this is not part of their job, but deacons can teach. Not that they must teach. Elders must teach. Deacons can teach. And sometimes they've done that for us. But not only are they tested in in Scripture, but they're also tested in theology. They're also tested in their Christian experience. they are also tested in their knowledge and understanding of the duties of the office that they will be taking up. It's a, it's a long and involved thing. We're starting leadership training first week in September. It will not be done. The earliest it might possibly be done could be May. But it may go into the next fall. I mean, we're serious about this because we believe it is vitally important to the health and well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, I'm tempted to get into. Uh, Well, I'll plant a seed here and we'll pick up on this next week, but let me just start a little bit here. One of the big discussions at General Assembly this week was the idea of deaconesses. In other words, are there situations where there are women that can be ordained basically as deacons. Okay? This is one of the principal passages that people go to, this particular verse in, in, in first Timothy chapter three, to justify ordaining women, not to the office of elder, but to the office of deacon in essence. There is a significant number of pastors in our, uh, our denomination who believe that we should do that. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about probably 20, maybe 30% of the pastors, of the ordained pastors in the PCA believe that women can be or maybe should be ordained as deaconesses. But as a denomination as a whole, we don't believe it, we don't practice it for a lot of reasons. And one of the things about it is this. Is our understanding is what Paul is talking about here is the wives of deacons. Because the Greek word gune can be translated as wife for any female applies to any female. But it also is the Greek word which means wife. Wise must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful uh, in all things. In other words, like their husbands, be respectable. Be dignified. Not malicious gossips. What is gossip? Really? And who's guilty of it? Maybe some more than others. But gossip's simply talking about things you don't really know anything about and coming to wrong conclusions and passing those conclusions on. You ever play that game, that memory game, where you're sitting in a circle of people and you know, somebody whispers a secret in the, in the ear of the person next to them and then they, 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 they whisper supposedly the same thing to the next person and so on and so on and so on. And they go all the way around and come to the last person and they say what the message is. Have you ever done that game? Have you ever heard, seen that game, experienced that game where the final message was anything like the beginning message? See, people have a way of messing up the details along the way. And, and, and the message that starts out is nothing at all as it ends up. And what I want to point out to you is, is the more we talk about things, the more that tendency that we have of changing details to spice it up a little bit, not even on purpose, and eventually leading to things that just are not Even true. People like to talk. One of the reasons is very often by talking we seem to gain some importance for ourselves. There's a particular lady in our neighborhood. If you want to know anything about anybody that has happened on that day, the only thing you have to do is talk to her because she knows. She knows everything. Be very careful not to be part of the gossip train. Because gossip can kill churches. Gossip has destroyed churches. So, wives of deacons, and let me just say this: I heard a sermon a few years ago by a pretty, very, very popular pastor of a kind of a different persuasion, Reformed Baptist. And I agreed with most of what he said, but I really went off. That went off when he said this. He said this: if you look at Scripture, because the whole thing what it had to do was a, it was a seminar that was supposed to address pastors' wives. And let me tell you, being the wife of a pastor is a very difficult thing. It's, 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 it's an impossible task unless you have a pretty healthy relationship with Jesus Christ yourself. Because people's expectations for you are always way higher than they are for everybody else. You're always supposed to have the right thing to say. You're always supposed to have a smile on your face. You're also always supposed to be involved in everything and, and, and this, that, and the other. It's a hard place to be. So the purpose of this conference really was to ease pastors' wives to give them some relief from the tension created by being so intimately involved in the ministry their husbands involved in. But at one point he said this. He said, well, Scripture's clear, and that is that there are qualifications for the wives of deacons, but there are absolutely no qualifications for the wives of elders. Now, what do you think about that? Sounds way out of kilter, doesn't it? Sounds way off track. Doesn't even make any sense that God would give qualifications for one without giving any qualifications for the other. So I'd say it would not be a leap for Paul to be saying here, he's not only talking about the wives of deacons, he's also talking about the wives of elders, wives of officers. It's a hard place to be. And let me just say this. I'm going to finish in just a second. That when a man comes to office, his wife comes into office with him. That God has made them, made the two into one flesh. And therefore, when a man serves as a church officer, there's a sense in which his wife comes right along him and serves right along his beside him. Now, I'm not saying this. I don't go home and tell Lori all the stuff that went on in session and deacon meetings. I would never do that. As a matter of fact, there's lots of stuff I hide from her because I know that if she knew it, she'd be worried. She'd be concerned, mostly about me. So there's all kinds of things that that go on, and she doesn't know anything about it. But let me ask you something. Do you think it would be wise for a man in, in, in the office of, of elder, whether you be a pastor or a ruling elder or, or whatever, do you think it would be wise for him if he's dealing with a particular issue that has to do with women, for him not to consider the opinion of the most important woman in his life in what he decides? What do you think? I think it would be very unwise for him to have that mentality. His wife is part of him. They're married. The two have become one. Anyway, we will pick up here next week.